so what? It's just fucking dumb radio. Who cares? You know, nobody's hurting anybody. Is it all pinball? Half and half. Okay. Half pinball, half arcades. If you just said that, I apologize. I know you were. That's okay. I saw. I heard the numbers, but I thought maybe it was. Uh, anyway, yeah, I uh, I do own a Kiss pinball. Um, uh, it's old the, or new? The, the old one, the okay. the the seventy eight eight Bally. Uh, yeah. with, the new one's actually a much better play, obviously. Um, oh. But uh, yeah, no, I still I, I the thing's fucking plugged in. I go out and play once in a while. Not not as much as I used to. I've had it for twenty years, so. Uh, yeah, I we have we have that one at the at the shop. I, dude, it's funny. I own this business. I don't play pinball. I, I mean, almost never. I'm the guys always joke with me at the place because they, <laughs> you know, they they can score like eight hundred zillion points on these games, and I'm done in three minutes. And I always tell them, I'm like, you guys don't want me to get good at these games because if I get good, it means I'm not doing my job. You know, <laughs> my job's getting asses in the door. Well, I, I suppose at some point here we should get into the episode. I am speaking with Chris Aiken, co-host of the Classic Metal Show and noted author as well. Uh, how you doing, man? I'm good, man. How you been? Not too bad. It's been a while since we talked. I had you on for your. Uh, we we chatted about your book, uh, your audio book on uh, Judas Priest Turbo. Well, right. That was uh, I don't know. That's got to be close to two years ago now. How long ago was yeah. that? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine, man. Two years sounds good. All right. Hey, <laughs> listeners, you can go ahead and check the archives. But, uh, yeah, um, you know, I was always uh, always looking to have you back on. It turned out that uh, I didn't – there's people that I didn't ask about doing anything on this because I just assumed – because of what little I knew, you know, I mean, they're not really grunge guys. Toomey uh, threw your name at my way, I don't know, probably about the day before I reached out to you to see if you uh, wanted to come on and hit one of these records. And said, yeah, you know what, he was actually talking about grunge. He, he's really into this stuff. So uh, give us a little bit. Like, uh, where are you at with grunge? Is it, uh, 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 like, are you comfortable with the term? How about that? Um, I guess. I mean, it, to me, it would... I never saw the huge distinct difference. I mean, obviously it didn't sound like quote unquote hair metal. Mm. You know, it was, it was different. It wasn't as clean, but to me it was just rock. It just, it just was rock music when it came out and then they gave it a term and close and called it grunge. But <laughs> you know, I, I mean, it came at a good time for me. I, I, I'm an experimental music person anyway. I mean, my playlist goes from kid rock to NWA to cannibal corpse to, Alice in Chains to whatever, so, you know, it, it, Yeah, I'm always, there's no music I don't like to be really honest. So when it came along, it just, it was something new and it was fresh. And for me, you know, I, I was lucky enough when it, when it first started hitting, when Alice in Chains first hit, I was, I was in the military in California, about an hour, a little more than an hour from San Francisco. So there were all, all these bands as they were coming up, were playing in that club scene, you know, they would, they would come through and they would play the stone, the Omni, you mm -hmm. know, the, the old Ward Waldorf, um, 
you know, they, they played all these places and I, I just happened to be in that zone right when Nirvana was hitting big, Alice in Chains, uh, Soundgarden, uh, Stone Temple Pilots, you know, all, all the big ones were, were just coming up at that point. So it was unique to be in that sort of in that scene, maybe not in the, not in Washington, but they all came, they all came pretty regularly, you know, to, to play. I, I mean, I think it was 91 into 92. Maybe I, I saw on a new year's Eve, it might, it might be 92 to 93, but it was a new year's Eve show with chili peppers, um, Alice in Chains and Nirvana. Okay. And, and, you know, so I, I mean, I was seeing these bands like before they were big, but they were, I mean, the chili peppers were big at that point, but, but you know, it, it was just a unique time. And for me, for me personally, I know a lot of people that are my age, I'm 52. They hate this era of music. They're just like, Oh, this is when music died. You know, (laughs) it went from being fun to staring at your shoes and you know, all that. Not for me. I'll put these albums up against damn near everything that came from the, from the late eighties and early nineties from that hair metal, or even some of most of the thrash stuff. I'll put an Alice in Chains up against it any day of the week. Yeah, and let's get into that. Uh, coming in at number six on Rolling Stone's Greatest Grunge Albums is the second full-length record from Alice in Chains and Dirt. Uh, this album was released on September 29th, 1992, uh, the day my mom and dad got divorced and then rekindled their love all in the same day. Um, it was recorded at One on One Studios in Los Angeles and produced by Dave Jordan, who also produced their debut record, Facelift, which uh, came in at number 14 a little while back, on the, further down the list here. It, uh, it features the singles Them Bones, Angry Chair, Rooster, Down in a Hole, and it would peak at number six. That seemed, uh, I guess I assumed, because at this point we're in the sound scan area, it would have done a little bit better than that. But it was certified four times platinum in the United States and supposedly has sold over five million copies worldwide. Um, now, before we get into some of the details in the record, I would like to point out at this point that a lot of the, the, the stuff that I got as far as my research came from the David DeSola book, Alice in Chains, The Untold Story. David yeah. was on uh, for uh, as a kind of a bonus interview for the facelift episode. And uh, T, I'll just spoil it right now. People listen to this episode. Uh, uh, on the following Thursday here, there will be part two, and we talk largely about the Dirt era. Cool. Anyway, uh, so yeah, Dirt was recorded like with the Rodney King riots happening in the background. Apparently, they had just kind of just got to L.A. and started getting into it. Um, Jerry has told the story of buying beer at a store when someone comes in and starts looting the place. Uh, And supposedly, the whole band and for some reason, Tom Araya from Slayer decided they were going to just leave town, go to the Joshua Tree Desert for four or five days while things simmered down in L.A. Um, David wasn't sure if that was he could confirm that, but he said he heard the same story there. Kind of an odd pairing. I guess I, I, I don't remember. I'm not surprised that these guys knew each other, but the idea that and, you know, they're in L.A., so maybe it's as simple as that. But. Could you imagine hanging out with those five guys, the the, the four dudes from Allison Chains and the bass player from Slayer, just sitting around Joshua Tree? What do you think they're doing? Uh, peyote or dropping acid? Getting, I mean, getting high and drunk, I suppose. Yeah, well, I I mean the way the way I always understood that story was that Araya was in to actually record, and he's on something on this album. I forget which song it is, is but he? he's on. Yeah, he 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 does vocals on. On one of the songs on the not not lead vocals, but like he's he appears on one of the songs on this album. I do know that. 
iron gland. I'm sorry. Uh, I <laughs> my, my 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 passing on that will come up when we get to that track. But yeah, so iron gland. It says that he's on it. Is that right. my, is it him going? I am iron gland. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, that, wow. So so you know he um he was probably there to record and then you know <laughs> they were like they they saw what was going on and were like fuck this I'm out of here you know uh, not a and bad they, move no I mean it 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 was an insane that that whole thing at that time was just nuts and don't blame him a bit for taking off and going somewhere and probably Uriah just had nowhere else to go he just probably just got in the car with him and got the hell out of Dodge yeah. <laughs> I there's that um I don't know if you've ever watched the uh uh what's what's what was that HBO show uh Entourage where oh, yeah. they, they they hook up with Eric Roberts and his uh beat up old Winnebago and they go out to Joshua Tree and that's what I'm imagining it's just them in the Winnebago uh with Eric Roberts too but they didn't want to mention <laughs> <laughs> nice uh not surprisingly based on the the lyrical content but Staley is and in what we know too I guess but Staley's heroin use was pretty much uh, an issue during this whole thing to the point that uh, there was a, a come to Jesus kind of conversation with Dave Jordan where he was basically just saying, you can't be coming in fucked up all the time. We right. need you to end. Uh, apparently there was a blow up between the two of them and Staley never really, I don't know. Apparently he got the message, but also was never really was cool with Dave after that. Um, Dave Jordan's just simply said, look, my job is to make a record, not be buddies with these guys. So he also supposedly introduced Mike Starr to heroin for the first time. Not really sure how you confirm something like that, but you know, we know that he eventually went on to have his own issues and was sure not in the band much long after this record, which is, I don't know. I I think a little too bad. I like, I think he kind of gets, I don't know, whitewashed for lack of a better term from the history of this band. Uh, it seems like Michael Inez kind of gets treated as the the bass player from Alice in Chains when a lot of, you know, and look, he, he, don't get me wrong, he was hired and he has been the guy since then, but Michael Inez is largely a session player. So I don't know, did, were you, uh, how deep were you into into like that kind of stuff with this band? Like, do, do you prefer Mike Starr over Mike Inez? Don't care? Uh I don't think I've ever sat down and said, let me analyze, let me analyze the tracks and figure it out. I, I mean, I don't know that I care that, that much about it. I mean, Michael Alton, Inez, by the way, a fine player, uh, a good sure. addition for the band. I'm not, n- n- not taking shots at him at all on, as a person or a player. You know, they're one of those bands, you know, and, and they've only proven it since lean past that can kind of, I've always thought that Jerry was the band, yeah. you know, and I still think that Jerry was, is the band. I mean, even the albums that they're doing now still very closely mimic what they did then. I mean, obviously uh, Duvall's voice is a little different than, right. than Lane's, so it's a different harmonized sound. But even if you listen to the um, to Boggy Depot or um, Degradation Trip, um, those sound like Alice in Chains records to me. Yeah. You know, it just sounds like they, they couldn't get their working relationship together, so... Cantrell Cantrell clearly was writing a lot of the music. He was writing a lot of the lyrics and um, he had that ear that developed what was the, the Alice chain sound. So I think they could have changed out anybody really except for him. And it still would have sounded somewhat similar to Alice in Chains. And if you look what they're doing now where Duvall is almost, he doesn't, he's not so much a lead singer as much as he's there to kind of 
be able to pull off those harmonies with Jerry uh-huh. that, that he wants to do. A lot of that, look, the, that's been on every record they've done, but this record is where you start to see where that almost becomes the focal point on the verses. You know what I mean? Right. Like where it's not just Lane singing lead and then Jerry and him on like a bridge or a chorus or something. That becomes the lead vocal is the two of them harmonizing together. And then especially the next record, which is basically uh, the last one with Lane, you know, uh, not getting too much into that, but you know that one was largely just a Jerry record, and Lane's he almost that that record as far as Lane's contributions seem a lot like what Alice in Chains is doing now. Sure. Well, and 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 if and if again if you put in Jerry's solo records, that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of where Jerry took it to. Yeah. You know, I mean, especially uh, you know Boggy Depot, uh, more than de- degradation, really just felt like he you was trying so? to sound like Alice in Chains. I think oh, so. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I, I think I think degradation did. I think Boggy Depot was was Jerry's attempt to add flavor to it, to, right. to what he had been doing where, you know, cause there's the, like cut you in has the horns and stuff in it. Yep. And, you know, I, I think he was, that, that was his one and only attempt to really stretch and it was not well received. And, and you, you know, then he went right back to it and did the, not only did he do degradation trip, but he did so much music that they re-released it, what, six months later or whatever with the, mm. with a whole nother album of material. So Yeah, that was on this list towards the end, and and I hadn't listened to that. I'd only heard the original release, which was, you know, like the 14-song version. Sure. Because my roommate had the CD. I kind of didn't care for Boggy Depot, so I stayed away from it. And whenever my roommate, he must not have played it too much, it just never clicked with me. But when I went back and listened to it, I first of all, I, I echo everything you just said. It is far more in the vein of Allison Chains than Boggy Depot, but right. it is an amazing fucking record. And then when I listened to the two part thing, which is apparently sequenced and, and written how he actually did it, uh, I did a, a, an interview with uh, the producer of the record, Jeff Tomei, and he breaks down the, the whole thing. And uh, it Jerry's version's better than the original. Apparently, the record company was leery of putting out a double album, which makes sense. Sure. But fuck it. it, it it's, it's awesome. So, <laughs> Well, if I'm not mistaken, too, that was Roadrunner that put it out. It and, was. And Roadrunner has that habit of, well, we'll put out this now, and then six months from now, we'll put out the special edition version of yeah. basically every <laughs> record they ever put out in the 90s and 2000s. You know, every Slipknot record, every typo negative record, Sepultura, Soulfly, they all had the the extra disc of of specialty that they released later. So yeah, Roadrunner knew what they were doing. Yeah, they uh, apparently they literally promised Jerry that's what they're going to do, and then I don't know they delivered on it. I mean, that album cover is pretty fucked up though, isn't it? With the yeah, it is. Oh my cutoff. god! <laughs> uh, a little bit more about Mike Starr. There was a song he apparently he's been kind of cut out of the songwriting for the most part, uh, and he started to learn a little bit more about the business end, at least to the point that he realizes I need publishing if I want Jerry Cantrell kind of money. So he had a song called "Fear the Voices" that he was just trying to shoehorn into this record.
you heard that? They eventually released it on their box set. Yeah, I've heard the song. Yeah, and it's not a bad tune, man. I don't know that it would have fit on this album, but... I can't imagine anything changing on this album. Yeah. I can't imagine adding something to it. I can't imagine taking anything away from it. Mm. I can't even imagine resequencing it. You know, I, there's. I, I got one big uh, thing that I want to take off the record, but I'll, I'll save it for when we get to it. Okay. Uh, we'll see what you think about that. But yeah, carry on. Uh, I, I, no, I'm with you for the most part there. Yeah, this is. I mean, I I don't want to fucking you know ruin the whole episode, but this is damn near a perfect record, man. Mm-hmm. I agree, but uh, the, the, the apparently the band was a little cool to doing the the song, and uh, Jerry would refer to the song as Mike's dead mouse, like he's a cat bringing a dead mouse trying to please them. Right. Uh, <laughs> and but Lane was a little more receptive to the idea of doing it, and uh, they they ended up recording it, and and Lane was gone out of the studio, and and like I said, Mike had been badgering them to kind of get at this, so they did it. And he called Lane and said, can you come back in and redo this one part? And apparently Lane lost his shit at that point and no longer supported Mike on, on the song. <laughs> it's like, you know what? Fuck you, man. You know, so uh, don't, don't suddenly start getting like, yeah, I need you to kind of come in. I, I, I asked uh, David DeSola if he can, can, came across like this. In his book, the vibe I got was that Jerry never really liked Mike. Like, just didn't like him. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, sure. David had a different approach to that. He said, look, you know, I don't know that he didn't like him like him. I mean, when he joined the band, he brought more as far as experience and opportunity to them, you know, than the other guys did. They were, he was far more experienced and, and, and connected in the in the Seattle scene at the time. Um, so he, it's not like he didn't bring nothing. And I, I do think he, as a player, uh, he, he added a lot to the sound. I, I think... Um, I think guys like Michael Inez, and I'll, I'll use uh, Eric Singer as an example. These guys that do a lot of session work and are brought in, they're brought in basically because they can get through and power through something without being a pain in the ass. Right. But they, they typically don't have that uniqueness to what they do. They're almost like they they can do almost anything really efficiently That mm-hmm. because of that they just they lack that kind of personality, if that makes sense. Sure. Oh, it, it definitely does. I mean, there's... There's a there's an army of those guys now, and there has been since the invent of um, of recorded music as well. I mean, there's a mm-hmm. there's that famous band from the what '60s or whatever, the Wrecking Crew. Oh, that, absolutely, yeah. And they played on what every record from Fuck the yeah. '60s. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And and the reason they always got gigs was they could play it, and they didn't fuck around. They just yeah. came in, did their thing, out, and it was note perfect every time. And that's why Glenn you know, Campbell why, came out of that group. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, dude, there, there's so, there's such a history of those guys. There's, we all know the set. I'm not, of course, I'm saying we all know it. I'm drawing a complete blank on any names, but you know, <laughs> you know, we, we definitely know there are definitely guys that have made their whole career, you know, kind of in the back, and and that's okay. You know, well, there's a whole movie about it. You know, uh, what's that? The, the documentary that the Five Finger Death Punch guy did. Um, Oh, a hired gun. Yeah, absolutely. So that's mm-hmm. so. Anyway, uh, a couple more fun facts before we get into the record. Apparently, Lane had this special vocal booth built. I'm not sure if you heard about this, but it's definitely in David's book. But it helped keep anybody from seeing him sing, which is you know kind of kind of common with this scene. I know Chris Cornell liked to sing alone when he recorded and stuff like that. Oh. But it was covered with pictures of naked women, and uh, I've had confirmation from. 
uh, two sources, the book and one other person, that he had a dead dog in a jar, some kind of weird, I don't know, artifact, like creepy <laughs> artifact that he had in there. So naked women and a dead dog, and uh, apparently Jones and for some heroin because he he's told he can't be high while he's there. But oh, wow. <laughs> um, and this is probably the darkest, you know, all this kind of grunge stuff kind of, there is a lot of kind of a, a negative overtone or at least a, a heaviness to the topics that they get into a lot of times, but this is probably maybe mad seasons darker, but this is one of the, this is a dark fucking record. Yeah. It's dark and it's, it's ugly and it is, it's, it really is it to me, it was a statement record. You know, everybody points to Nevermind, and I'm not going to get into Nevermind right now, <laughs> other, other than to say that that Nevermind, even though lyrically it, it was a little bit dark, it didn't come close to this. Oh, this, not even in the ballpark, man. This, if you were if you were drunk the wrong kind, if you were in the wrong mood drinking and listening to this, <laughs> there was a chance you were taking your car off a bridge. Oh, boy. You know, it, it just, it just is so dark and so brutal and so it's almost in a weird way. It's almost death metal. Like as far as message, not, not lyrically and certainly not musically, but as far as just that message of fuck it, kill, I hate life. It's right there. And I I think that was, you know, as weird as it sounds, I think that was the appeal to this record, Hmm. even facelift. Facelift was kind of dark, but was still a punchy record. Sure. You know, it, it was more up. You know, you get to stuff like, uh, you know, uh, Rooster, Rain When I Die, whatever. I mean, these are like, whoa. You know? Oh, man. And the side two is just, it is, it is so brutally honest uh-huh. uh, as far as <laughs> typically, you know, when people are writing about their habits of, of negative sense, they try to be a little more poetic. Uh, um, this is pretty much a sledgehammer when it comes to when they get into the drug talk. Now, well, you know, you hear you hear so many bands talk about how they had to get it together to record a record. Yeah. They had to get themselves together. Alice of Chains went just the opposite way. They were like, yeah. we're fucked. We know it. And that's what we're going to deliver to you. You know, <laughs> and, and that's really what they did with this record. They gave you just an ugly insight to a band that was out of control with drugs and emotion and depression and everything else. Well, on that note, just before, and we'll, we'll get into the side one here in just one second. Um, uh, both Staley and Cantrell have talked about this, and it's in David DeSola's book again. Um, I keep plugging that because he's coming up. Staley said that basically this is almost like um, a, a tale of, like, side one of this record is kind of like, the side one of this record is, is a lot about dealing with anguish and turmoil, where side two is almost using drugs to deal with that kind of stuff. And kind of, right. and then, of course, the eventual problems that, that come on just from the drug use that you're using to bury Oh, all the, your feelings about some of the negative shit going on in life. So right. on that happy note, uh, Chris, let's get into side one. The record opens up with Them Bones. <laughs>
probably the 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 lone what punch quick punch in the face. I mean, it opens you hard. Yeah, and it it, it lets you know thirty it's there. seconds. Yeah, and it lets you know that they're there. You know, it's sudden, it's quick, and it's 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 probably the the I, I think it's the it's the fastest song on the record, isn't it? Oh, tempo? Yeah, it has to be right. Uh, either that or damn that river. Um, there's parts of sick man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but but I. But as I mean, a song, this, yeah, this one kicks off, and it really yeah. just stays bam, 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 bam. Yep, and it's short and to the point, and you know, you know, you're in for something from from note one. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't this might have been the first record I heard I can't remember if this was the lead single or not uh, the, the timing is a little bit of a blur for me uh, but Lane came up with that ah! like uh, supposedly in the studio while they're recording it um, Gotta, I have to admit though Chris not a big fan of that just that uh, it's okay I just don't know if it adds as much as, as some I've heard him talk about and other people but this is a killer opener to an album yeah you're, you're, you're getting Knocked on your ass right out of the gate. That said, <laughs> and it's weird because it's going to make it sound like I, I don't like the song. The opening riff, that little boring for me, uh, a little kind of redundant. But that guitar, when he shifts into the guitar parts for the chorus, is just next level. It's classic Allison Chains. It balances everything out perfectly. Um, the guitar solo is awesome, but uh, uh, you know, the song is basically you know one of the more optimistic songs on the album, where it just talks about we're all going to eventually die and be a pile of bones. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's it's the one where they don't go too deep, and maybe it's only be, maybe that's why it was only two minutes long because they don't go they don't do the deep dive like they do on so many others on this record. Good point. Well, uh, every week I like to let the guest pick our rating system. I know we talked a little bit before the show. Did you have one lined up? You want to kind of go off the cuff as we go? I'm I'm good either way, man. Well, since it's Alice in Chains, let's go with heroin needles. Oh, nice. So, uh, so how many heroin needles do you give uh, them bones on a scale of one to five heroin needles? I would give that four four heroin needles, but all of them clean and new. Ooh, <laughs> yes. I'll, I'm going to I'm going to do the same exact exact same rating. Four clean, brand new heroin needles uh, for them bones. So yeah, a, a solid solid track record from them bones. It goes right into uh, damn that river. Almost merge those two songs together and have one Alice in Chains song because it's it's another fast tune. It's a cool tune. Well it, said. It, it's yeah, real quick on that point. Like if I hear it, yeah. like you know, if it's on random on my MP3 player, my head will instantly go to that damn bones rift or, or, or damn that rib. Right. Damn that, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Uh, see, I'm even confusing the titles. Uh, <laughs> damn that! It goes right into that. But yeah, carry yeah. on. No, you're right. It, it, it does. It almost feels like it was meant to be one song with like two parts, almost like a prog metal song in yeah. a way. <laughs> but, but yeah, great tune, 
another fast one, another energetic one. And it's weird because if you just heard those two songs, you'd be like, okay, well, this is a, this is an appropriate follow-up to facelift. You know, it, it fits with what they were doing with facelift. And then it all changes after, but yeah, you know, damn that river. Another, I, I love this tune. It's a, it's a fun one. It's one that if you can listen to it in your car without turning it all the way up, you're better than me. Cause I've never done it in the, however many years it's been since this thing's been out 30 years or whatever. That's a great litmus test. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say better than you. I'd say you have worse taste than Chris Aiken if you can't turn this thing up to 10 uh, or, or 11, as, uh, as, as it might be said. Um, classic Cantrell drop D opening riff there. Um, I mean, it almost that kind of riff almost defines him as a guitar player and a songwriter. But it's really more on this song that, that it, you start to realize how fucking big of a monster the guitar tone on this record is oh yeah it is so fucking huge it takes up so much space but at the same time it doesn't like bury everything else you know what i mean it's uh-huh. it's it's really a testament to dave jordan and, and how he came up with that you know and, and don't get me wrong i mean cantrell kind of keeps his tone through everything he does but this right. this record was uh, it's a little more polished than than facelift and it just i don't know man it's it, it it is one of my favorite songs on this record. Yeah, but two songs in, basically, uh, we have Cantrell and Staley sharing lead vocal duties, kind of like mm. we teased a little bit ago, um, where, you know, it's only a bummer in hindsight because this really would be the last proper Alice in Chains record with Staley singing lead vocals on. Um, so in, in that sense, you almost feel like robbed. But <laughs> right. at, at the time... You know, this was like the next progression, and if they would have been able to, you know, carry on and have a longer career with this stuff, I don't know that I would. I would speculate things that way, but yeah, I mean, and and Sean Kinney is just brutal on this, just killer. Uh, one of my favorites here. Yeah, what 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 do you give for a rating here? I'm gonna give this one. Um, I'm gonna give it five clean needles, man. This is this is one of my absolute favorite tunes, and um, it's one of my go tos even thirty years later. So five clean needles for damn that river. Yeah, I'm going to give it five, but I want to make them dirty because this song is just fucking filthy. <laughs> uh, yeah, but definitely five needles uh, for me on this one, too. All right, from there we go into Rain When I Die. start learning really fast that Alice in Chains has grown in a very, very different direction really fast. You use the term grown there. I like that because it's not just the topic, but it, I mean, the, the combination of everything, I, I would agree. It's a musically perfect song. It's a musically deep song. The lyrics are ridiculous if you actually dig into them and yeah if you, know, you read them like uh you're reading i don't know like a chart 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's like wh- when I heard it the first time, I, I was like, what, what just happened? Good you know, you know I, I was just rocking right along and all of a sudden, I was yeah. like, what is this? You know? And, and it, it was one of those tunes. I don't know how, how it was for you, but I, I know when I got this album, I was working, I was in the military and then I was working nights at a, at a record store in California called uh, the warehouse. And, um, is that W A R E? W H. Okay. W H E R E house. I okay, think different one how, I bought the CD on my way out of the store the day it came out. And, um, and I put it in my car and I remember specifically rain when I die, when it came on, I just was like, man, that is really different. And I remember just hitting, and you remember back then CD players were shitty in the cars, you know, yeah. they skipped all the time. And so I remember <laughs> I kept, I kept hitting to start it over and then I literally sat in my driveway listening to that tune probably five more times in my driveway because I didn't want to go in the house where where the wife was and the baby was where I couldn't listen to it loud. So I sat in my driveway <laughs> with the full blast just just trying to get it. And oh, you man. know, it's it's so dark, but it's so as a music fan, it was so different and cool and you know, to me it was everything looking back at it now to me it's everything that that scene that made that scene separate itself from the 80s it, it literally if you if you put one song and said okay give me one song that separates this from doctor feel good and back it's it's rain when i die wholeheartedly agree what a great point um yeah i was broke uh, my roommate bought the cd and I was so blown away. I like we're he we're at home and I'm literally like he's playing it for the second time and I'm rummaging in my room trying. You remember back then you could sell CDs back to the store. Sure. Uh, I'm trying to find three to four CDs of like I think I only had like forty or fifty at this point that I can live without just so I can trade those <laughs> in and get this. Right. Even though I live in a house with the guy who owns it, it's like right. I need my own copy. He could play it for me whenever I said play it. But right. uh, man, it, uh, it and and yeah, this is definitely one of the songs that just punches you in the mouth and you go holy fuck because you know I was already a fan right and then you go you know when when you see a band that goes like like you love facelift and then you hear this fucking record that is such a rush when you go mm-hmm. l- look at the level these guys are taking it to and this song man just that name. that fucking line oh just fucking kills me every time i really can only echo just how amazingly awesome this is i'm guessing i know what you're gonna rate this but what do you got how many needles does it take to start a pandemic or an epidemic or whatever (laughs) whatever it is that's it it's it's it's, rain when i die is probably my favorite song of the grunge era so whatever whatever that would be a million needles all of them dirty and used and spreading aids you know, as dirty as it can possibly be, because it definitely changed my world completely. Uh, this one definitely needs enough needles for me to OD before yeah. the song's over. So uh, I'm with you, man. This is just uh, I I uh, I'll save my favorite track for the record, but this is up there, man. But this is just just brilliant. So next up, we have "Down in a Hole." And, and, and before you go, I just want to say more, please. Bearing me softly 
hole with rain when i die and then you went down deeper into it with with down in a hole it's another moody dark dark song cantrell is his brilliant self lane is brilliant everything is on this one brilliant as well and you know the the thing that these two songs start but it goes on for pretty much i think most of the rest of the record the first two songs, short, quick, to the point. Mm-hmm. From Rain When I Die and Down in a Hole on, all the songs are long, extended. They 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 do such a good job of... Yeah, w- what is the shortest song after this at 328? With Angry Chair being at 448. Everything else uh, is five minutes or more. Yeah, I mean, so, so you know, and, and you know as well as I do, if you burn your finger on a stove, as an example... <laughs> You know, just just a, a, a just an easy example. If you burn your finger yeah. on a stove, it 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 bothers you for. I like where you're going here. Twenty minutes or something, right? Yeah. And you feel every second of those twenty minutes. Yeah. This you get you get forty five straight minutes of just, bull pain, suffering, damage, you know. The starkest of reality that most people have never ever felt, hmm. and it's you know, and and yet it's it's appealing in some way. It's it, it really is like being addicted to drugs in the in the sense that it's appealing, even though you know it's killing you. This is my favorite track on the album. Okay, um, and and by the way, Rain When I Die, a fuck, it's like one A one B, but this one I, I give it a slight edge, um, pretty much every day, but. Uh, um, and you know, you mentioned a while uh, a song or two back that like um, I, I think it was "Rain When I Die" that 
this would be the one song that represents that scene at their best. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To me, this is this would be the one song that would represent Alice in Chains being at their their basically their pinnacle. Sure. Um, uh, the opening line that "Bury me softly in this world" it just it, it it fits in so many ways from the the dual harmony and the way they they, they sing it to it almost kind of like giving you a visual image of the album cover and title, you know. Um, and I don't know, Allison Chains and Soundgarden being the big four of this scene, so to speak, were definitely my favorites. Um, sure, but, but they both of of those the, of those four. They were the most inventive in their approach to songwriting. I mean, this song opens up with what could best be called a pre-verse, and that doesn't return until a spot where a guitar solo would be. And they just kind of harken back to it with Lane kind of singing over the top of it with a different piece. So, um, yeah, this is perfection all around, writing, production, performance. And right off the bat here, we got four songs that are staples in their live show probably still today. Oh, yeah, they are. (laughs) They still play all four of them. So, you know, really, I I mean, this album, they play most of this album today. When they they do shows now, I think they play like six songs off of this album today. Well, if they're hitting these four, you know they're hitting Rooster, and then you throw an angry chair or wood. Wood. Yeah, okay, yeah. And angry chair. So, yeah, six, seven tunes just out of this one album. I give this one 15 fucking needles. What do you got? I'll I'll go with you. We'll 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 um shoot them up together. We'll go fifteen <laughs> apiece. Right now we can't even fucking focus on the next track, and that is a uh, <laughs> uh, sick man. But it does not go back to sounding like the first two songs. It's, right. It's and I I think on this tune in particular, it's all Lane. You know, it just you know the he. I always took it as he was singing almost from a. You know, I'm not. I've I've tried heroin once or twice, so you know, sue me for that. I'm I'm one of the few that was able to do it twice and get away <laughs> get away from it. Thank God. But you know, I'm scared. I've never done it. Uh, stay that way, dude. It's, yeah. It was. It was not that far. Hey, if it was going to happen but, now, it ain't never happened. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But this, the lyric, especially at the beginning, where he's singing, "What the hell? Where the hell am I? What the hell am I?" You know, and that is true. That is almost like the truest statement, and I always took it as this of him trying to recall when he first started using yeah. where he, lo- he lost himself. And, and you know, if, if you've ever done anything other than pot, excuse me, when you first use it, everything's going a million miles an hour mm-hmm. for a minute or for five minutes or for an hour or whatever it is. And I always took sick man as that, as that trying to recapture what, he first experienced with it. And you know, the, the old story about, about any junkie is why do they keep using? Cause they want to get back to that. And right. it, I always, I always looked at sick man as almost like lane trying to 
put that experience into song somehow. There is an interview with Lane that I read years ago that I, for, I tried for, on a couple different reasons for the Mad Season episode, for Facelift, and even for this to find it. I, I'm, I th- I, it had to be Spin Magazine. I'm trying to think of what I was reading back then, but Lane was very stark and honest about his drug use. He said for a long time it worked for me very well, and now it doesn't, and I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, for those who aren't aware, he 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 routinely went into treatment. He tried rehab and stuff. I don't know, at least fifteen or sixteen times, something like that. So it wasn't like he was unaware that what he was doing was bad, and he seemed to have this part of him that wanted to get away from it. So you you could be onto something there. But getting back to the song, this is probably the closest thing to filler for me. I wouldn't call it that. I do think the drumming kind of saves it a little bit. Um, sure. The verses aren't bad, but that can't be almost demented circus going into the chorus. And then uh, the chorus itself doesn't doesn't do a lot for me anyway. It, yeah, it, is, it, is, it is weird how they use that circusy scream thing to change tempo, though. That mm-hmm. is in, it, it may not be your favorite, but that is an interesting way. You know, most most every other band we've ever heard, they do that stark, that hard stop and then. Yeah. And then change tempo. Oh, well, they, they they end up doing that though, right after right. the chorus. Right. And 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 to your point, I've always found that lazy. I'm like, <laughs> you. It's like I have this, and uh, six months ago I have this. Let's just put them together. Sometimes you right. can make it work, and it's great. But sometimes you get one of the myriad of reasons why I dislike Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. I see a little silhouette of a man. Scaramouche, Scaramouche, will you do the bandango? Thunderbolt and lightning, very, very frightening me. Galileo, 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 Galileo Pigaro. Magnifico! Oh, I'm just... With you there. <laughs> yeah, right on, all right. I, I, I not a pop, that song. <laughs> not a popular opinion, but I cannot stand the hard shifts that song fucking takes. Sure. Um, would, but wouldn't, but you, wouldn't you like to interview Dave... Um, Jordan and ask him if this was a pieces parted together tune. Oh, I'd absolutely love to tell. Yeah, that be that would definitely be on the list of questions I'd ask. Uh, what do you got for a rating on on Sick Man? I would probably give this one a a, a solid three three needles. I'll say it's not. I'm, I'm with you. It's not the best tune on the record. You know, it's it, it's probably closer to the bottom as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But and, and it you know. It does suffer from the fact that it comes off of four unbelievably amazing <laughs> tunes, too. There's, That's there's probably be a big song. part of it, right? Yeah. There's got to be some song that doesn't feel as good that, that really changes direction, and I think Sick Man was definitely it. It's good that they changed it up right here, um, but yeah, as, as a standalone song, I, I, I also gave it three needles, so we are damn near neck and neck in our ratings so far. Yeah. Um, but uh, let's see if we can switch that up here with uh, the last song on side one. Um, I don't know if this came out on vinyl at the time, but that was around the time where things really weren't, everything wasn't coming out on vinyl. Right. Um, but it was definitely on cassette. So before we flip the cassette, we have to listen to Rooster. They found a way to kill me yet. Kids, I'll talk that. 
I know we were saying before about that we wouldn't change anything. Mm -hmm. If there was a place that we could change a song, I would move Rooster up one slot. I would put Rooster up behind down with a hole. One, two, three, four, five, right? Right. And then have Sick Man do the same thing that Angry Chair does on the second half of the record as kind of the. That's actually a really good move. If you're not, you know, if, if you're not removing either track, I like that. Yeah, so that you would have those three just emotionally draining songs back to back to back, and then something to pick you up enough to flip the tape mm-hmm. over. You know that, and again, that's a reach because I still i've I've never. You know, I have MP3s and I've never renumbered them either. So you yeah. know, it's not like I've gone out of my way to do this. It's just it's just a thought. Uh, Rooster, another great song. I think we would probably hold it in the same esteem as we do Rain When I Die and Down in a Hole if we hadn't been beaten up by radio by this song. Okay. Because Lord knows radio beat this into our skulls over and over yeah. and over to where it's not like it's definitely one that I have no problem skipping. If I'm going to skip, if I want to listen to four songs off this record, I, it won't be on it, you know, but, but you're but, saying that's only because of the amount of times you've heard it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You know, it's, it's the same as like, um, teen spirit on, on nevermind. Hmm. Do you ever go out of your way to listen to that song? No don't need to. Yeah. I, I could sing <laughs> Today, it. Today still don't need to. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I, another great song though. I, I love this song. Well, it definitely, this has to be their biggest hit, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, okay. Uh, I mean, just I'm talking charting and, and and what your casual fan would know. Um, and of course, it's about Jerry's dad's experiences in Vietnam. Apparently, Jerry didn't have a great relationship with dad growing up, and this was written his, his kind of attempt at like offering an olive branch to repair some of that relationship. And my understanding is that it, it largely worked, and they um they uh, as years have gone by have become quite close. So. Uh, uh, Good to hear that. Uh, always nice to hear a positive father and son story. Sure. That said, man, not my favorite tune, and that wasn't because of radio. First spin, this was okay. one that I was like, oh, it just didn't click with me. Um, the weird thing is, though, I get why it did hit. You know what I mean? It's one of those songs that it's like, you know, I was not the target audience for this, but sure. uh, the one that was is much bigger than just me. Um, so, um, but... Honestly, no joke. When they play this live, I'm taking a piss. I'm getting a beer. <laughs> what What do you got for a rating here, man? I'm gonna give this one. Uh, I'm gonna put it with the other two. I'm gonna give it a five, at least five. I love it. Yeah, as much as I just shit on it, it still gets a three and a half for me. There you go. The, the, uh, it's our first time. We kind of had a little bit of a break here, so. Yeah. Not that much of a break. No. <laughs> Only yeah. if we go to the show together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, yeah, come stuff the rooster. Like, oh, he's, that's right. He's taking a piss. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right. Well, before we get into side two, a couple items of note I'd like to get into. But Mike Starr would be fired. Um, uh, basically, in, I, I had the date written down wrong. It's early 93. While they're on tour, they're playing a show in Brazil. And apparently, <laughs> they fired him before the show. Let him know. And then he still played the show and threw up on stage or something like that. Um, uh, the best account I could get there, I can't get really even from from David's book and even talking to him. There can't get a real clean line on this, but I think anybody that's been in bands or basically relationships of any kind that kind of fizzle out, 
there really isn't that black and white line in the sand thing. Things just kind of start to lean a certain way. At uh-huh. a certain point, the tower tips over. So um, I'm guessing it was probably more like that, just on my own experiences dealing with musicians. But um, now on this tour, they would headline the 99 uh, Lollapalooza uh, Festival, but that was largely it for them as a live act with Lane. I can't remember if... Um, uh, the unplugged, I, th- I believe, was after this, but I'm I'm not 100 positive on that. But uh, and uh, on a somber note, of course, we all know that Lane died in his apartment on April of 2002. I gotta tell you, Chris, they like to say he died on April 5th, but they also the same day that that Kurt Cobain committed suicide, I think, in '94. But seeing as how he died of an overdose and wasn't found for almost two weeks. I don't see how they can say with any definitiveness. Yeah. Now you might pick a death day, but to me that seems more poetry, and I that's that doesn't really sit well with me. I don't know. Yeah, I I don't know. You know what? I, and to be honest, with any of these guys that killed themselves, whether it's with drugs or with a with a gunshot or whatever, I'm not really up for celebrating it anyway. If you if you want to get right down to it, I'm not I'm not going to give them a national holiday for taking their own life. Right. You know. You well, know? even even if someone is a little more um, I don't know uh, pragmatic about it than you, it's not a thing to celebrate. No, not at all. You know what I mean? And and um and and to try to like oh you know because I they did, they did the same thing with um uh, Cornell and uh, the singer from uh, Lincoln Park. Yeah. Oh, they were friends and and he did it on his birthday and I'm like. Well, if he did, we should be going, that's pretty fucked up. Yeah, exactly. And and, and again, I also don't want, I do not want to make light of addiction or drug abuse or, um, you know, mental issues, because these are all very real issues that that we deal with in this country, uh, in this world anyway. Um, I'm just saying, I'm not mocking the situation as much as I am the reaction. So it's the people that are out there going, Oh man, him and Chris were so close. It's like, would you shut the fuck up? The guy is dead. Exactly. You know, I mean, he left behind kids that no longer have a father and you're worried about like how nice it fits into some fucking stupid package about, Mm -hmm. Oh, his relationship with someone else, man. So I don't know. Exactly. Just, just go to your go to your Spotify privately and play, you know, "Rain When I Die" and um, "Come As You Are" and shut up. Yeah, you know that's how I feel about it. <laughs> oh, but um, what was the enigmatic Chris Aiken listening to just before grunge broke in 1991? I was listening to pretty much just metal in general, whether it was hair metal or thrash metal, because I was living, like I said, I was living kind of right near San Francisco right at the right at the height of that scene you know so um you know it it was it was pretty much a weekly occurrence for me to just go up to san francisco on a friday night or saturday and go to the stone or the omni and didn't even matter who was playing you know i would see whoever was there so i was just into just just metal in general but those are the bands that were probably the the ones that i that were in my car i'll say that who were the bands that that uh, from this scene? Uh, you can focus on the big four or anybody else. Who did you gravitate t- towards the quickest uh, of the grunge scene? Yeah, probably Soundgarden first, just because I saw them first. Um, you know, I saw them with with Metallica. Um, still, the the best show I've ever been to was Day on the Green '91. It was Metallica Ooh. sound was Metallica first show of the Black Black Album tour. It was um, uh, Soundgarden was on Bad Motor Finger, 
Faith No More was either they were debuting material for Angel Dust, but I think they were still touring the real thing. And Queensryche was was just launching Empire. Wow. So it was just an amazing show. And Soundgarden was the one I, I knew the least. I had Bad Motor Finger and I had the um whatever the the, the uh, EP thing was, the FOP oh, thing. Okay. You know, I had that one. I didn't have the one in between the live what is it, living There's live- two that you got louder than love and ultra louder. mega okay. Yeah, I didn't have those. I just had the the FOP one, the FOP Ultra Mega yeah. something, whatever that was. But Bad Motor Finger, I was really, really into, and mm, you know, yeah, and maybe. and that's another that's another album that you know, totally different vibe than anything that was going on at the time. And I think that's so why I was into it. Kim Kim Thale's guitar didn't sound like any guitar I had ever heard ever. You know, and and I just was like, Ooh, what is this? Let me listen to this a little bit more. And they, of course, went commercial, you know, very quickly, which I didn't like. But, <laughs> but Bad Motor Finger, that was, I, I, those albums are okay after, like, Super Unknown, okay. You know, um, Down oh, From uh, The Upside or Up From The Downside or whatever that one is. Eh, the one with Ty Cobb on it. I, well, I don't know about that one as a record, but uh, it's Super Unknown is, is an amazing album. I, I still prefer Bad Motor Finger, but yeah, see, I wouldn't I call him a sellout good, but... for Super Unknown. That seemed like a natural growth to me. Mm, I don't know. I, I think... also felt the same way about the Black Album with Metallica. So, Well, yeah, and, and, and believe me, I've taken my share of shit for liking that record, too. So. <laughs> but yeah, I, I would say that probably of the my first gravi- gravitas, I guess, would have been to, um, to Soundgarden. Okay. But then quickly into Alice in Chains, and and then everybody else was a distant third and fourth and fifth from there. Well, well let, let me give you one more question here before we get okay. to side two. And I've asked everybody this. I'm really curious what you're going to think. Did grunge kill hair metal? No, absolutely not. Hair metal killed hair metal. Nice. You know, hair, dude. I, I And I definitely consider myself to be a very knowledgeable hair metal guy. I know every one of these guys. I've done websites for Doc. Bobby Blotzer. And, and I know Blotzer. <laughs> I know, you know, Stephen Piercy is a friend. And, oh, right. you know, I, I, yeah, I know all the, I, the hair metal guys I know. I mean, obviously, I do the classic metal show for 25 years. You know, that's, that alone is going to put me in contact with all these guys. But what everybody always forgets to talk about Everybody, when they when they say, oh, grunge killed hair metal, this and that, is they compare it to the biggest bands of the genre. And, and, the, the, and the time, too. They forget yeah. that Pretty Boy Floyd was really trying to push their shit right now. They forget that that at the time that, that grunge came out, it wasn't Poison doing Look What the Cat Dragged In. It wasn't Guns N' Roses doing Appetite for Destruction. It wasn't... Uh, Warrant doing whatever the, the big Warrant record was, um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, whatever that's Cherry Pie. Cherry Pie. It wasn't the big albums like that. It was Kick Tracy. It was, um, you know, the dying <laughs> embers of slaughter. It was the, um, you, you know, Cats in Boots. It was Alias. <laughs> it was Junkyard. And you know, I mean, it was it. It wasn't the heyday eighties. It Ofi- was. The- it's officially the first cats and boots reference on whatever. Never mind. <laughs> well, probably the first reference to them. Period. In the last thirty years. <laughs> Good point. But, I mean, that's what was going on, man. In the 
in the 90 in the early oh, 90s i mean even those go. bands did i mean if you think about fast forward three years just three years all of those bands tried to sound grunge because they knew that what they were doing was dead you know and that's why you had ultraphobic from warrant that's why you had dis or not dysfunctional uh shadow life from Dokken. that's why you had all of these grunge sounding 80s hair metal bands just trying to hang on to that last little shred and it didn't work but but i still say I, i'll never you know that that's kind of like saying did did threat did death metal kill jazz you know they're 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 <laughs> distinctly different things yeah you know i i mean were 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 you i don't know how old you are were you old enough to go to hair metal shows oh yeah well i mean i was um uh, crazy nights was probably oh I, I I'm sorry I, I saw girls 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 on tour that was my first okay. show so Fair, that that's a, that's a fine analogy and you saw any one of these bands Alice in Chains or mm-hmm. or Soundgarden or something right yeah tell me there's anything anything at all similar about the two shows no actually um I would say one thing I would actually compare them more more to thrash in a sense of the way they approached it more mm-hmm. about the music and, and putting on a show. I saw the Clash of the Titans tour, and yeah. that was really my... I mean, I, I think I had heard Man in the Box, but I didn't really know Alice in Chains. Sure. And they fucking crushed. Yeah. Um, and apparently, every, every story I heard, I saw the only show where everybody didn't boo them and throw bottles of piss at them. Uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, the crowd was receptive. But, you know, we're known here in Minnesota, don't you know, for being nice, eh? Sure. Well, well, I, I don't only talk about the music, too. Talk about the... Um, Talk about even the crowd reaction, mm-hmm. the crowd reaction itself. Girls, 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 everybody's happy. Every, you know, they got the tit cam out there showing the, the tits on the screen. Everybody's cheering. Everybody's having a good time. You go to an Alice in Chains show or a, a Soundgarden show or something, and it's meaner and it's, it's yeah. darker and it's, it's not, it's not, woohoo. They're playing my jam, you know? <laughs> yeah, it, it, definitely at the time. I mean, it was less of a party, except for Lollapalooza. But there was, but that, that was more of like an event where people were walking around and deciding to check out music when they wanted to. Because right. I honestly think the Red Hot Chili Peppers benefited from grunge blowing up. Um, I, I think it helped them a lot. But they were kind of an upbeat party kind of band. When you think sure. of, when you talk about the message and the the shirtlessness and uh, and also the the female appeal, where I sure. think grunge definitely kind of appealed to that kind of loner white dude. Uh, sure. Not a, not as much pussy. Right, exactly. But 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 even the Chili Peppers too. If you think about what their biggest hit was, right at that same time, it was Under the Bridge. Right. Well, that's what I'm getting they at. Like dark. they almost uh, when they went dark, that's when the things got good for them. But uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's always fun to hear kind of the different ideas. It's kind of a, a cliche question, but I thought it'd be fun from the beginning of, of doing this to kind of throw that at everybody on their way through here. So, uh, sure. um, excellent answer. But uh, let's get into side two. I think I'm done. I I, 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 I wanted to save batteries, so I pulled the cassette out of the Walkman, and while you were mm-hmm. talking, I was spinning uh, <laughs> the the cassette with a pencil. So right. Opens up on side two with Junkhead. Okay. 
song. Yeah, man. <laughs> I, I sound like a broken record here. Great song, you know? Um, uh, another long one, another solid one. You can't imagine what Lane was feeling when he wrote these lyrics. Oh, I think he can. <laughs> I don't, or maybe they're, I they're don't want to. pretty fucking literal. <laughs> maybe, maybe I don't want to. <laughs> you know, that's, the, that's the real point. I, I, I get your point. No, I mean. Uh... Side two of this whole thing, this whole thing is darker than darker than a black room with a blindfold on. You know, it's it's some dark shit, and and Junkhead kicks it right right there into it. And uh, I, I touched on it before we get into side one, but side two, you can definitely see it's almost like this half is a um, concept record. Junkhead, yeah. uh, the first track here, and we can break it down as we go here, but it starts out with like basically I'm a junkie and it's fucking awesome. Yeah. You know, everything is great, and and that line that what's my drug of choice. And just the way they sing that is just amazing to me because that's a fairly mundane line. What's my drug of choice? Well, what do you got? They just nail it and kind of almost it hammers home the message in a way that like I've heard people talk about how this is a pro drug record. And I think a lot of times it's misinterpreting specifically this song. Yeah, I don't think they're saying like literally, they're trying to put you in the mindset of a junkie in the in mm-hmm. the early stages of being a junkie. And to me, I think it's a fairly obvious thing. I always get irritated. Uh, I think it's simplistic to to kind of dumb this down to just being pro drug. But uh, well, didn't didn't it get labeled pro drug too by Lane himself? Like Lane Lane said it was anti drug, but he constantly had people coming up to him at shows and. And being all fucked up and being like, yeah, dude, you know, like like they were relating to it, but mm. in the wrong way. And it just drove Lane crazy. So he talked about it a lot in interviews. Oh, maybe. I, I, I hadn't stumbled across that, but that that would make sense that it would irritate you that you're, you're like, you know, <laughs> you're getting that kind of reaction. But, you know, that's just kind of that party dude thing. The weird thing is, you know, I was would have been like, oh, this came out in 92. So I would have been like 22, 23. I wonder if, like, meeting them, I would have been sensitive to the idea that, like, this is them describing struggles. I would have Uh been like, fuck, yeah, that song is fucking killer, you know? Right. And that's just how you communicate back then, you know what I mean? But the the, the song definitely resonated with me, and I'm a guy who, by the way, never done more than pot, to your previous Uh point. So, I, I, you know, as far as, like, you know, the progression people think of when it comes to drugs, I think I've done speed. I don't know where that falls in the line there. Um, but Sounds by like the way, kids, to me. yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's all I'm getting at. Um, so yeah, this would have, this would have been my dropout year of college. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it, uh, it definitely simplistically describes a conversation, you know, between, um, like a drug user and someone selling drugs. So, mm-hmm. uh, but I absolutely love it. And that harmony lead as opposed to just kind of a, a, a standard guitar solo that down and it just seems to be the perfect part to play right there. There's just so much they do right in this record, you know, and, and this is one of them. So uh, five fucking needles for me. I give this one, I would give it four, but I'm going to go to five just because it has my favorite. And this is such a minor, minor, minor thing over the course of this record, but it's my favorite half second of music in the whole song. I love the part where, where he does, where he comes out. They do the harmonized vocal, and then all of a sudden Lane just 
has that one solo, complete solo moment where he goes, and I do what I like. Yeah. Again, it's it's non-traditional. They're they're doing the harmonized harmonize and, and you know, I mean we've we've all heard a million songs with the harmonized chorus and whatever. And then all of a sudden then there's then there's this one little sliver that's different than anything else which elevated the song for me. And, and as a singer, we haven't talked about him much, but he has so many vocal performances on this record that are just next level and and just just shows what a what a rare talent he was. But honestly, as as simple as it is, the way he goes into all the choruses, where, like where he just goes, "Yeah, what's my you know that that scream leading into him." And you you know what's odd about him, just in general, most most singers that I've ever encountered, and certainly the ones that are that are dopeheads are selfish beyond belief. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they almost all are. Oh, wow. A great point and, here. And if you listen to Alice in Chains, he's like the one non-selfish singer. You know, I mean, what other singer in any band that was hopped up on smack was willing to share 90% of his vocals? I, I, I almost think that probably in general he was probably a non-selfish person, but you're talking yeah, actually professionally spotlight kind of sense. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I mean, I'm just saying drug addiction is a very selfish thing and it's a very private thing, you mm-hmm. know, as we found because Lane disappeared and died by himself. When it came to doing his job, he was more than willing to share, you know, the dynamic that made his band different. And that's, you know, he didn't do that even in Mad Season. No, he didn't no, find he didn't. another guy to do it in Mad Season. So there was something about this environment that worked in a different way maybe than the rest of his mind worked, you know, and, and I've always thought that I, I, I've always thought that he was like the most unselfish singer I've ever, ever listened to. All right. Well, up next we have dirt. Another just menacing track. You know, it, it's weird. I, I I actually interviewed Cantrell in hmm. whenever Boggy Depot came out. 98. And, and I asked him about the cover art because, you know, so much of this record is, at least in my brain, is measured in, in drugs, obviously. Yeah. And he told me that, that the cover art, and the name of this song and, and what they were, what it started out being was about some chick that he hated that, that, yeah. that just absolutely devastated him. And that the cover art was kind of a, like a message of, of he was burying her after she had buried him, hmm. you know, like, like she had ripped his heart out and tore him up emotionally. And I never got that from this song. And and to be honest, even since then, I've never gotten that from this song. 
Yeah, the song. I don't know. If this song is about that, but uh, well, that's what he told me was yeah. that that's what that's what it was. Oh, crap. okay. I thought you were talking the album cover. Okay, all right. No, he 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 said the album cover, but this song as well started from that experience. And I was and I and I don't know if he was just bullshitting me because I was and I won't lie, I was very nerved up interviewing him. Mm-hmm. You know, like you were saying before about you know approaching approaching those guys. Yeah. This was one of the very Jerry Cantrell is one of the very few guys ever that I got nerved up with because they'd been through some stuff and obviously you know, by that time Lane was passed away and everything else. And, you know, I didn't know how to approach him and they, they seem so mysterious that didn't seem like I could be like, Hey bro, what's up? You know, you know, so it it was a, it was a weird interview anyway. And he might've been fucking with me. I don't know. But, but he told me that the album cover and the album and this song was all about a chick that had really hurt him. And I don't I don't hear that at all in the song. I hear, I hear just, you know, ripped out, ripped out, um, physical pain. Yeah. To me, this definitely starts to expose the less glamorous side of, of addiction. You know what I mean? That the, the, that the previous track kind of sets you up for, but, and it opens up with almost a Sabbathy kind of riff uh, from that kind of like Sabbath, bloody Sabbath sabotage era. Um, yeah. you know, and then they've definitely, you know, never hid from their influence from Sabbath, but this one definitely, I can, I can almost, I kind of feel Sabbath doing something like this. Um, not my favorite track in the record, but I do love that one line where, um, I, like the one who doesn't live is one who shouldn't be, but yeah, I tried to hide myself from what is wrong from wrong for me. And, you know, the, to me, that is definitely about, Staley kind of dealing with with drugs a little bit, so yeah, I wonder uh, maybe he was jacking around with you. I don't know. Hey, uh, I don't know, but um, but yeah, Kenny and Mike Starr shine on this record or this out this song too. Um, uh, uh, what do you, what do you got for rating in here? I'm gonna give this one. I'm gonna give this one three and a half. Three and a half needles. Ditto. Uh, we're <laughs> we're neck and neck on this one. Uh, up next, I didn't I didn't rate this next thing. It's Iron Gland. There is actually releases where this isn't even listed uh, on the outside of the the cover. You know what I mean? Um, to me, this is really kind of something that was. It, I, I like that it's in the rec- record. It doesn't bother me as kind of a setup to the next track. But it's it's basically just forty five seconds of them kind of doing yeah. something silly. I don't even know what to, to say about it. it. It's it's very much like how how typo negative like to do that. Just throw in yeah, good example bullshit for no real reason, and then I, I and. It's funny because I know with Typo, Typo did it because um, Peter Steele thought it was a joke, and, and Peter Steele got off on people reviewing <laughs> and writing about. Well, this is a this is clearly a transition between the you know, and meanwhile it was just them being dicks. So you know, I, I almost I've always wondered if that was that was it, or you know, and again since Tom Araya's you know the the voice on it, maybe it was the only way they could get him on the. <laughs> get them on without without a, a legal problem who knows yeah i wonder if it's something as simple as that but yeah to me it's almost cooler that like hey we want you to be on a record and then you you show up in the studio and like this is what we want you to do <laughs> <laughs> you know? and then even cooler he goes no problem it's almost like uh, uh george clooney was the barking dog in one of the first episodes of uh, south park oh really <laughs> yeah and uh and apparently jerry seinfeld uh, was interested in doing it, but when he found out he was just going to be asked to go rough, rough, uh, <laughs> he passed. But they're like, "Well, George Clooney got the joke." To me, that's kind of cool. Um, all right, we'll, we'll just skip into that. Uh, Iron Gland leads into "Hate to Feel." What the fuck will it take? Drown myself. 
big song for them. Another um, meaty, emotional. Yeah, I feel like a broken record on this side of the album because it's really, it, it's it's really just more of the same, and the same is good. You feel you feel the pain. This is yeah. the. At least for me, I, I know Angry Chair is definitely, you know, and we'll get to that in a minute, and that's definitely some pain as well, but it doesn't hurt as bad, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, this is the last one where it's like, it just feels bad, for lack of a better term. Bad, but in the best way possible as a music fan. So I like it. I'm, I play it a lot. It's, it's, it's another fine track. Cantrell sounds great on it. Lane sounds great on it. The whole band sounds great on it. Yeah. The message here is basically, lyrically, that now drugs have gone too far. They've, they've taken uh-huh. over. You need drugs just to not feel what you right. feel when you're not on drugs. Um, you know, and, and not, so again, it's, it's, it's amazing how starkly honest um, Lane, of all, all the lyricists from this time, was about his drug addiction, you know, because... Um, you know, one of the things about addicts is denial is is, is a big right. thing, and we we talked about that in Mad Season. But it doesn't seem like Lane Lane pretty much skipped over denial when it came to his his drug abuse and his substance problems. There, um, at least if we're judging him by his song lyrics, he was pretty overt and literal. Um, and yeah, this one, uh, this was when we know how things end up. This is almost kind of a sad precursor to to, to how things with him. Um, to your point about side two. It doesn't have any of the bangers that side one does. You know what I mean? Oh. Um, at this point, we really are just telling a story, and mm-hmm. it, it it does feel like you. This song feels like you're almost at the end. Yeah. Um, uh, and this is a great example of a track that you have to to really appreciate it. You have to listen to the album as it's sequenced from mm-hmm. beginning and get to this point. Um, as a standalone, I give it a three and a half, but as far as where it's at in the record, it's four and a half needles to me. It's just important enough that it has to be right here. Yeah. Th- this one is, de- for me, this is definitely a five banger between the toe needle. Ooh. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it, it, it's, it's painful, but it's, but it's, it's painfully addictive. You know, you know, the, the intro, and I'm just thinking about this right now. If this album itself would have come out five years earlier, it wouldn't have come out. No. The record label would never, you know, and it, this is going to be the most odd tie-in ever, but these guys can almost thank NWA for breaking the barrier of I get that connection. Level. You know, they, they're, the NWA with, with Straight Outta Compton broke that street level thing to put, and what that did was it kind of put anything that's going on in real life on the table, you know, and that was what, 88 or 89, something like that. And, and here comes this just a couple of years later, telling a different tale of street level, you know, and, and just stark ugliness of the, of a street level guy, you know, if they would have put this out in 87, I I can't imagine a label would have even touched it To, to loosely tie into your point. Um, you know, we talked about did grunge kill hair metal? I think, the first domino, if, if hair metal had an expiration date, it mm-hmm. was Guns N' Roses. When that blew up and suddenly you got this n- kind of nasty, yeah. vulgar, just angry kind of shit that is resonating not just with guys mm-hmm. like you and me, but with the jocks, with the jocks girlfriend. Right. And it's this dirty kind of unearthly kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And suddenly that's marketable. And then you talk about NWA. I think that's a great thing. Those kind of things set up 
the 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 plate that that grunge became. You know yeah. what I mean? So uh, yeah, and and if you look at what was there before it, I mean, all these other tunes were all these happy. You know, she's my cherry pie, mm-hmm. and you know, and you know, uh, you know, the the closest we came to reality was um, what eighteen in life. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great comparison. <laughs> you know? Wow, yeah. Well, nice drop yeah. there, Chris. There was nothing that was that was reality. It was all chicks and parties and fun, and then not, all the not sp- on a marketable level. I mean, yeah, maybe maybe Pink Floyd, The Wall. Um, yeah. as far as like something that was big, but you know, you punk music dealt with a lot of real stuff, and I and I, I think you know so. the rap that didn't before you know that stuff broke was, was, was might have been in there too. But yeah, your point's valid, man. Well, uh, the, next up we have Angry Chair. song but it feels less dark from because of where it lays you know that that's really what it is it falls it, you know what I'm, I'm giving i'm giving at least half a needle back because this is another one i got sick of hearing on the radio <laughs> but um but yeah I, it's a great song i mean when when and the intro to it is, is cool the the little drum intro at the beginning oh, of yeah. it yeah you know, that's that's a very cool thing um Again, Lane is Lane may be a mess, but he could certainly craft telling that story of being a mess better than anybody. Absolutely. And and, and Angry Chair is a you know it's a bouncy, fun. Excuse fun me. Fun is probably not. It's weird because words I would use are, <laughs> don't fit. Fun and Allison Chains don't usually fit, but uh, it's a fun listen. Happy. It's not a fun experience. Okay, how's that? Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, to your point about this, like being kind of like it, it, it just is almost uplifting the way it kind of comes into it. You know, the, the, after everything, it kind of goes into it. I've touched on this on a few other episodes where, like, these albums that have these dark message. I think the one thing that a lot of these grunge bands, even when they get into heavy topics, offer even if it's more overt than it is literal, but a sense of hope. Like, sure. like you don't really feel like it's as bad as they describe things. They never really kind of like, and so we're all fucking doomed. You right. know, there is a sliver of like. We just got to get let this pass, and then we'll be okay. Uh-huh. And this kind of this song, exactly the way you describe it, it just kind of at the end of this fucking really dark turn, you got yep. this kind of you know, and uh, yeah, and then of course it's still kind of a, a very heavy lyrical and and thematic tune. But um, uh, as far as the song, I found it kind of an odd choice for a single when it came out. This one. I don't know. It, it, it's a really cool tune, but I would never have been like the guy in the market in the, the A and R room going, "You know what? We need to make a video for a fucking Angry Chair." You yeah, know, I probably would have put a couple songs ahead of it, but uh, the Doomy opening riff may be the least sounding Alice in Chains thing they ever recorded, though. Like if you just heard that riff, you wouldn't instantly think Alice in Chains. It would take you a right. different direction, I think. But, mm-hmm. but once the song kicks in, of course, once you hear Lane, then it's it's all there. So sure. Yep, I like it. 
What do you got for a rating? I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it four four needles here. I'm gonna. I was gonna give it three and a half. I'm 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 putting that putting that extra half back in my back in my arm. I'll take it. Yeah. I, the more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm like, yeah, maybe I'll listen to that a little later. <laughs> This one also gets four from me. So, yeah, uh, we've had a couple episodes where we're basically from beginning to end, I was neck and neck with the guests. So uh, this is all fun. But now, I don't know if you're aware of this, Chris. This is the one album on the list of 25 that I'm doing that we actually did an episode on as Cobras and Fire a couple years ago. Um, I actually toyed with the idea of just kind of like regurgitating that, repurposing it and sliding it in here with the idea that I, you know, I've already kind of talked about it. What what am I going to do? I went back and listened to it, though, and it just really didn't fit the way I was doing this whole setup. And I'm like, so I'm just going to I'll find someone to do it with me. So I'm about to hit home the one thing that I think they they fucked up on this, and that is Wood should not be on this album. Basically, we listened to this entire record, and it was written and sequenced for this album. This was Mm -hmm. already a fucking huge hit. It was on the single soundtrack. It was everywhere. This is a marketing decision. This is something that the suits of the company did. I don't think they should ever play a role in the creative process. I think they need to fucking contact, set up interviews, set up uh, all the publicity, all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to like things like sequencing, what songs belong in here, you don't get to come in at the last minute and go, this is a big hit. Let's throw it on here too to sell another... I don't even know how many records it sold because of that, but I I just don't like it. It sounds different, which isn't surprising. It was recorded almost two years earlier in a different studio with a different producer. So I love the tune. It's a killer fucking track. If you want a rating, I'll give it a five. But because we're talking about dirt, I say take this off. You literally stole what I was going to say. Oh, damn. I, I absolutely love the song and wish it wasn't on the record. You know, same exact reason. I felt ripped off. I absolutely felt ripped off when I when I got to it because I knew the song. It ruins the end too, right? Yeah. Isn't Andrew yeah, I, Chair I, I, the perfect ending to this record? On some level, I I understand why they were trying to to end with a poppy song, and they knew they had this song that they could repurpose. They were trying to end the way they started. That's really what they were trying to do. They started fast. They wanted to end fast. <laughs> they wanted something that was sing songy a little bit. Sure. So they. That's what they were trying to do. That I don't know. I think said, someone at the label if, just said, we're putting this on here. I don't know that there was that much thought into it. Well, what they should have, if, if, if my theory is correct, they should have gone, they should have either sent them back to the studio or left it off. They, they should not have. Wood already did what it was going to do. The, I, and I don't know because I don't remember, but was Singles a different record label than then um oh fuck Bert? um yeah definitely i think it was uh, well, shit i don't know if that's off the top of my head but so that might have been that might have been the real reason is to take the licensing back off the song ah you're, yeah again though these are fucking business decisions this is an artistic I, I, this record's a fucking masterpiece i agree and you just basically threw a fucking mcdonald's commercial at the end of it <laughs> I definitely agree with you. I wouldn't have put it on there. Put a that Nike logo on the cover in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm with you, man. And and there's no need. It's not even like it's a short album that needed those extra three minutes. It's an hour. It's 12 tunes. You didn't need it. It did not need it. And, and, and I'm sorry. You said at the beginning that you would not change anything. So yeah, no, I, I didn't think I was stepping on you there because I've literally already made that point on my own episode. So sure. uh, I apologize for that, Chris. Nope, it's all good. 
Well, one thing I like to do is always give the guest the final, final thought, so I get mine out of the way right before that. Okay. Um, so I have some prepared statements here. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking a lot about Soundgarden and Chris Cornell on, on the show lately. I, I touched on a little bit ago, I mentioned that Alice in Chains and Soundgarden were definitely my two favorite bands of the scene. Those are, those are my go-to guys anyway. Mm-hmm. As much as I love plenty of other music from this era, those, that, those are the, the ones that to this day... If they release music, I go by. Um, sure. With Soundgarden, I wanted to sort of immerse myself like in the message and the music when I listened to it. You know what I mean? Like put on some headphones and just try to like just crawl into what they were doing. But with Alice in Chains, one thing I I wanted to pick up my guitar and play. Jerry's approach to the guitar was very relatable to almost any musician a very in, in, a, in a way that like Angus Young and Ace Frehley had but at the same time just like those guys it was so unique and it was so inspiring especially as someone who was young and just trying to like learn how to fucking play this damn thing mm-hmm. um so th- that that's a big part of it for me um and maybe Jerry Cantrell I think is the last guitar hero you know in many respects I I I'm not sure there I I couldn't think of one since that like a guy that like literally you know, kind of drove people to that. The only one of the the, the scene for for sure. You know what I mean? Like I, the Kim Thale, as great as he was, uh, Mike McCready is a, is killer on fucking guitar. But mm-hmm. you know, kind of just has that kind of like bluesy kind of vibe to him. You know, it, sure. It, that's, I'm not shitting him at all. And Kurt Cobain probably influenced people to start a band, but probably more to be to write songs and sing than I think as a guitar player. But sure. Anyway. Mm-hmm. But you hear the stories of bands having their entire life to write their first record, and then you have that sophomore slump kind of shit. This song is this, this or this song, this record is a fucking masterpiece. I mean, it literally represents Alice in Chains at their pinnacle. I almost wonder if having the, the license to do sap in between helped them out a little bit, kind of take a little breather, reset things a little bit, do something different outside the box, and not feel this this gigantic pressure. But you said it earlier in the episode perfectly. They made a statement with this fucking album. Um, this is just one of my favorite records from all time. Um, it It is, like you said, something I never really s- stepped away from for long periods of time. This uh-huh. one keeps coming back in the cycle for me. Rolling nope. Stone has it at number six. I slide it all the way up to number one. I'm going to echo where you placed it. I definitely, this is by far my favorite, by a lot. It is my favorite um, of the grunge era. It would be this one, then it would be Bad Motor Finger, and then... And then everything else trails from there. But, you know, I, I, I mean, this is the staple for me. The dirt was the staple. Everything Alice in Chains did would be in my top 10 from this era. You know, you know, and, and I know with the list, they, they didn't have the, the list didn't have everything. But I would have Jar of Flies on here somewhere. I would have Sap on here somewhere. Facelift, Tripod, all of them would be would be in my top 10 from from grunge because that alice in chains is my start and finish band Hmm. this is by far the the deepest and dirtiest and maybe the most emotionally tiring record i own in my collection it's not the kind of record you just listen to in the background while you're doing your job it's the kind (laughs) of you know it's the it's the kind of record that you listen to when you're in a funk (laughs) And you're, you know, you either want to hear something that's worse than what you're in, or you just want to be in a shitty mood. Guitar-wise, it's amazing. Cantrell, I agree with you a thousand percent. There has not been a, he's the last guitar player, the last guitar hero 
you know, we, we did a, a segment on the CMS one night, well, six months ago or so, where we were comparing the influence between Cantrell and uh, Richie Black. And I'll say Jerry Cantrell had much more influence than Richie Blackmore just because just because Blackmore came in and there was already other guys. There was there was there was a bunch of other guys that were doing it. When Cantrell came, it was after the guitar era had kind of kind of fizzled. You know, the guitar era had it, it was Eddie Van Halen and George Lynch and then who? You know, it, it it had sort of fizzled out in a big way. And then all of a sudden, Jerry Cantrell came with a new sound, with a new style. It was different. Kim Thale, you know, he doesn't get enough credit, in my opinion. He's he an important player, for sure. He, and never got enough credit for what he does. But that being said, he didn't do it for very long, either. He went four albums or whatever. So he didn't, you know, in King Animal, I don't even count. That was, that that wasn't very good, but... Um, you know, um, yeah, dirt played it, played it all day today, getting ready for this. And I'm happy that I did. (laughs) Yeah. It's a killer album, man. Yep. Good stuff, man. Well, I always like talking to you, Chris. Uh, thanks for coming back on the show. Why don't you take a second here and plug everything you got to plug? Oh, that's going to take longer than this did. (laughs) Well, let's see. There's always the classic metal show, which is the classic metal show.com. And it is part of. The little network that we put together, which is the CMS Podcast Network, cmspn.com. And then there's the video element of that, cmstv.net. Then there's my books. There's six of them so far, um, chrisakenbooks.com. Um, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> that's enough stuff. I want to be a plug whore. Uh, I, I always appreciate talking to you. You're one of my favorite. Uh, I don't know. Do you, do you even consider Classic Metal Show a podcast? Podcast, TV show, something, something. Okay. It's, it's a little uh, bit of everything. Definitely an inspiration for, for all of us out here. Uh, definitely check out the Classic Metal Show. It's one of the, uh, I don't know, the finest shows on the planet. Um, I really don't know much more I can say about you, Chris. I love you. Whatever, dude. All right. Well, never mind. But you have the same as I do. You got the you got the big audience with the with the podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.